Professor Colin O'Gara is a consultant psychiatrist and the head of addiction services at St. John of God's Hospital in Dublin. Colin received his PhD in 2010 from the University of London Kings for his work on the genetics of nicotine addiction and is also the author of the book Gambling Addiction in Ireland, Causes, Consequences and Recovery, published by Veritas. We're going to talk today about gambling, the addiction, a highly stigmatized disease and one that causes untold suffering and destruction to individuals, their partners and their families. We're going to talk about the psychiatry profession, technology and, of course, growing up in Cork. Don't forget to like, comment, share and hit that pesky little subscribe button at the top of the page. Thank you. Professor Colin O'Gara, welcome. Thanks very much, Connor. Delighted to be with you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, okay, so tell me, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I am from, uh, although people say to me, you wouldn't know it at this stage. I think Cork, a few of my Cork friends have recently said, you don't sound, what happened to your Cork accent? Um, uh, yeah, I am... Uh, grew up in Cork and uh, headed off to London um, after medical school and so I was seven years in London and then back to Dublin and so I am out of Cork about 20 odd years so yeah. How would you describe your childhood? Um, my childhood was um, Good, uh, overall, a um, positive, uh, happy childhood in a loving family. Mm. And um, overall, um, yeah, I grew up, I suppose, in a house with a lot of, a lot of focus on... Um, uh, sorry, this is a thing on the screen there. Um, yeah, just a lot of focus on sport, um, which was great. I mean, we seem to be... So I'm one of four boys. Um, and uh, obviously have a famous uh, younger brother. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we grew up in uh, a, a sporting um, scenario, but also my father was an academic, you know. My mother's a mm. teacher, my father's an academic. So there was always that academic piece. My father is a geneticist. Well, he's just retired now, but also worked in biotech and um so there was that aspect as well so um uh, obviously i didn't go on to uh, become a sports person because i wouldn't be talking to you in this context if i did <laughs> um but uh yeah i i suppose i followed on i my phd was in genetics you know mm. um so uh i followed on and you know the interest in i suppose i was always i think i i recall buying a, a Carl Jung book for one of my brothers. I did a silver, um, I, the, the undiscovered self, I think it was. Mm. Um, and I think I'm not sure it was actually read by, by at all, but I think I had an early interest in pro psychological processes and human behavior, you know, um, and, you know, in psychology in general. And I think mm. that was, um, you know, uh, like in terms of medicine, I, you know, I think the overall science coming from a background of a scientific, like your father being a scientist, I think he was probably influential in, in uh, he would have had a lot of worked with a lot of medics, interface with a lot of medics in terms of he'd done a lot of work on cystic fibrosis, um, the genetics of that and various other medical projects. And I think he was probably quite influential in push in in um put you know pushing me down that road, and um, because it offered a um from a scientific um point of view it off probably offered a lot of options you know, mm. um and then once you're in medical school it's um it's really interesting in terms of the uh I often think it's it's a path of exclusions you you kind of end up. Um, like for a while, I I was to be a, a surgeon. I remember when I was an intern, I was you know hanging out with a surgical team that um uh some of I won't name, but uh in this podcast, but uh they were 
they were the great guys and they're currently quite uh, prominent surgeons, but um they were very encouraging and suggesting that you know you should you should go down this route. And for a while you'd you go like you go through pediatrics and think, God, I do pediatrics, or you go through um whatever whatever um specialty it is, but I think you you end up um uh, leaning back towards your original interests, you know. So like just on the surgery surgery thing, it was just you you see what's involved and you know your true passions, I think, and, and your true interests um will will eventually dictate your path. So I think I leaned back towards my original uh interests in human behavior. And um of course I did psychiatry then, which which was a breath of fresh air in terms of um the you know, the approach, the the art side of psychiatry in terms mm. of um you know, human behavior, you know, there's so much you don't, you can't read in a textbook um, or that can't be taught. I suppose there's an interaction between um, humans to, um, you know, in that, that space to try and help somebody to get well. Um, it's hard to encapsulate that in, in, in a textbook and it's hard to, you know, I, I, I teach medical students uh, regularly and, um, I explained that piece to them, um, you know, in terms of the the difference between physical health. But uh, yeah, that was my path anyway. So so so, and then went to the UK, and um, I suppose you know after internship, I was pretty clear. After I did my psychiatry rotation, I was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do. And um, you have a choice between you know having the interest in genetics, then you would naturally look abroad to somebody the powerhouses in genetics and other areas. And, you know, the IOP Institute of Psychiatry was a world, you know, standout leader in genetics, particularly social genetics developmental center, um, which was headed up by, um, you know, some seriously um, serious heavy hitters in terms of international um, publication and that. So I was lucky to be able to study psychiatry in London and then at the same time be able to research. So one of my earliest grants was in cocaine research. Um, I put it put in an application to to kind of uh, second out of the clinical training and to, to work on a Brazilian population mm. um, from Sao Paulo of cocaine users. And, um, you know, that then led on to an opportunity to do a full PhD in, in biotech and um, which included me working the lab and on um, PCRs and RFLPs and various other techniques. And then eventually liaising with a biotech company that could do uh, collaborate and do some of the work together. And we did that on the interplay between neuroticism, smoking and uh, genetics and looking at particular polymorphisms and say the serotonin and the dopamine in particular, the, the dopamine transporter and DRD two genes. So, mm. um, so that was that was excellent um, opportunity. And then, um, you know, you're you're you make the decision: do you want to stay in the UK or do you want to go home? And um, you know, you agonise over that for a while, and uh, you talk to the people back here. And um, at the time, cocaine was booming uh, in Ireland and particularly Dublin. And I spoke to the current the management team of uh, at the, the at the time of this hospital which has gone back what nearly it's certainly 17 years ago they wanted to set up a, a a cocaine service purely cocaine um because that's how prevalent it was at the time so yeah so i joined up and um i've been i've been there since so i've been at the hospital since so you you excluded other um avenues and went into addiction essentially yeah yeah. And what, what drew you to that? Was it was it healing? Was it trying to help people heal? Was that essentially it? Yeah, I mean, within psychiatry, you you know, there's there's psychiatry, there's general adult psychiatry, which is mm. goes across the board. You've got psychiatry of later life, you've got rehabilitation psychiatry, you've got forensic psychiatry. And I mean the what initially drew me to that was the you know the the opportunity in terms of uh, if if you can you know I suppose from a neuro neurobiological perspective you've got eighty or ninety percent of people taking drugs and there's no issue 
Mm. Um, but then for for some, there's a major issue. So in terms of genetics, that's an, a huge, huge question. Mm. And and also in, ter- in terms of therapeutics, um, there's such promise there as well. But it struck me early on that the therapeutics for addiction were very slim. Mm. I mean, in terms of anti-craving agents and, um, you know, you have, like currently you have, you know, after lots and lots of research, you don't have a huge amount of therapeutics. You know, you've naltrexone, you've Campral, mm. uh, naltrexone working on the opioid system. You've Campral working on GABA glutamate system and uh, well, you've Nalmaphene as well, which was an opioid on the opioid system as well, which is marketed as a harmonization method where you can kind of drink um, on Nalmaphene. It's a drug that we don't use because we mm. subscribe to the abstinence model. And then you've disulfiram then as well. But in terms of... Um, uh the, the opportunities i you know again it's 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 what presents to you as opportunity you know in a medical career i mean in terms of you know for, so what i'm trying to say is there, there may not be opportunities to research and rehabilitation forensic mm. um general adult psychiatry and the other point is i suppose is there was a, an awful lot of irish people at the Maudsley and the mm. iop that happened to be working in addiction at the time, quite influential people like Michael Farrell, who was an international, he was an Irish guy, but he's an international, he's working in, in Australia at the moment, mm. alongside John Strang, who was one of the world leaders in harmonization, and another Cork man called Michael Kelleher, who happened to be in the UK at the time. So, you know, these people are influential in the direction that you take, they're supportive, they say, look, there's opportunities here, and you follow those paths. So, you know, yeah, that's part of it. So in terms of gambling, right, what what is it offering the user, the dependent in the short term? Is it is it a chemical dopamine effect in, in your view, in your experience, what's going on there? Um, OK, so at a bio, you know, a neurobiological level, you have um, uh a major dopamine surge in terms mm. of the reward experience. Why do some people um, go on to develop a, a compulsive state that they persist with the behavior in the face of adverse consequences? Again, according to the World Health Organization definition of addiction, that mm. is the most plausible explanation for that is the dopamine hypothesis. Um um, or a hypodopaminergic state where um, you have a some individuals who, uh, and, and I, I'd like to view this on a spectrum. I think mm-hmm. some of us may be slightly prone to this and others may be largely pl- prone to it. And I'd like to think on some level that we're all at some level prone to this. So in other words, if you rack up the environment enough, in other words, if you kind of put somebody into a highly a gamblified environment then eventually the dopamine hypothesis will kick in okay Mm. um so basically some people in a very simplified terms their dopamine levels are too low and what they're trying to do is to try and hike those dopamine levels up increase them to a level that feels normal Okay, and this is the sensation seeking theory that people will jump out of airplanes or engage in risky behaviors. Um, Now, it gets a little bit more interesting in gambling because, you know, that could be the hypothesis for, say, taking substances, taking. So you take take a drug or you take cocaine to boost your dopamine levels. And for that period, you feel you feel really good. And it takes out this hypodopaminergic state, which is probably the most, you know, um, kind of plausible clinical explanation would be a dysphoric state. So running slightly under what would be considered considered normal, you know, not, you know, feeling just a little bit lethargic, not feeling fulfilled. Mm. So in gambling addiction, there is the added piece of risk. So um, you have the, the hypodopaminergic theory, but you also have risk processing. 
But the risk processing areas tend to be in the high dopamine areas within the brain. So we're talking orbitofrontal cortex, cortices, ventromedial frontal cortex, ventromedial um, uh, frontal cortices, and dorsolateral prefrontal cortices. So I put in nearly every talk I give on addiction, I put these areas up. They tend to be just here mm. in around the front frontal cortex. Now, um. That's the theory, and I'm sure some of your listeners at this stage are going, all right, this How is getting slightly practice. Th- well, it's getting slightly boring, right? Because no. it's it's you know it, it is on, on well on some level it could be boring, but I'm going to tell you the next bit I'm going to say to you is where it gets very interesting mm. because about well I keep saying about ten years, and I've said that for the last. I don't know. Let's let's just stick with that. Say say, say for the last 10 years, but you nearly probably have to go back 15 years. I started to get referrals from neurology clinics, from neurologists, Mm. right? Who said, please assess this person who has developed pathological, at the time was called pathological gambling prior to gambling disorder. Mm. Pathological gambling. They've never gambled before. But they've come to me, they've got Parkinson's disease, mm. okay? And we put them on a dopamine agonist, okay, which is the treatment for one of the treatments, main treatments for Parkinson's disease. And they've developed compulsive gambling in the face of adverse consequences. They can't stop. They've lost this, that, and the other, all the features of gambling. Mm. And so in that is we know that uh, Parkinson's disease is a dopamine disorder, Okay, mm. you've got a hypodopaminergic state and you need to give dopamine agonists to boost the dopamine levels, to increase motor functionality, to reduce tremor, to reduce the features of the hypodopaminergic state. Mm. So the prevalence of pathological gambling in the general population, it's, it's, it's you're going to hear the gambling industry say it's less than 1%, 0.7 or something. It's not. It's it's The spectrum goes up to about 5% and possibly higher. But let's say severe pathological gambling, for, for the purpose of this discussion, is 1%. Mm. In Parkinson's patients, it's 3% because you've got disordered dopamine. That's mm. one indication that we have an issue. It supports the idea that we've got an issue with dopamine. When we give a dopamine agonist, which boosts dopamine levels, the 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 level of pathological gambling goes up to somewhere between six and fifteen percent. So we have a a clear association between Mm. disordered dopamine, the introduction of a dopamine agonist which boosts dopamine levels in the brain, and then the development of further pathological gambling. So any you know, that's a very strong. Uh, supporting evidence of the biological basis of 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 gambling of gambling disorder. So, is is gambling disorder must therefore be categorized as a disease? Well, it was in in two thousand and thirteen. It was categorized as a disease by the uh, by DSM. That's the mm. uh, American Classificatory System for Psychiatric Illness. Up to that point, it was in a, a more vague grouping with uh hair pulling and uh fire setting um you know trichotillomania and pyromania mm. and nose picking actually which which is even rarer um but it was in that group and then because of converging lines of evidence from genetics from functional mri studies from la- laboratory studies of gambling and clinical data the four of those things converging in on one point going, this is most definitely the same as drug and alcohol addiction. Mm. And it was classified as a disease. Now it is, it's the first process addiction where there isn't ingestion of a substance Mm. to be classified as a disease. And, uh, you know, as sorry, as an addiction and a disease. All right. And, um, at the, you know, you know, for the classification of the other process addictions, we're talking internet gaming disorder, mm. um, which in uh, recent, most recent update of ICD-11, which is the European classificatory system, that has been classified as a, an addiction. And uh, the 
in the American version, it is for further study. So it's in a kind of a waiting group. Mm. Um, but we ha- it, what, what gambling addiction has done is it's opened up the box now in terms of process addictions. And then you have to ask, well, what are the other process addictions? Mm. The other process addictions of, of relevance are sex addiction, which is a significant concern at the moment and is a, is, is a significant clinical difficulty uh, exercise and work mm. and and maybe there, there are some others but again this is we're getting into now controversial territory where the field is very much split and there are raging debates on you know is is this an addiction is it not an addiction I don't mm. believe that's the right approach I think you know really it comes down to um it's how we classify these these problems in terms of the criteria for diagnosis. So what I mean by that is if you had six criteria for addiction, which would include mood modification, conflict, tolerance, uh, and persistence, uh, you know, in the face of adverse consequences, and mm. if you use six of those core features, and if you, uh, you know, um, wanted to find an addiction where you have to tick every six bo- every six box, all of the six boxes. Well, then you're going to have a very low prevalence of that particular addiction, as opposed mm. to three or four, in which case the prevalence then will go uh, much higher. So, but there is no question in terms of process addictions. Um, I see um, a, a lot of men in particular who have serious difficulties with excessive consumption of porn mm. or uh, webcam use or attendance at sex workers, sometimes crossing over with drug use. I see um, uh, men and women who have serious difficulties with internet gaming um, and uh, have run, you know, there's a crossover then with gambling in terms of loot boxes. And there's also purchasing issues with internet gaming in terms of skins and that where people can spend a lot of money on it and run into Mm. difficulty that way. Um, And then in terms of exercise and work, really these are concepts that haven't been... um, haven't been looked at um there's no consensus whatsoever on those and i ha- i'm not getting direct referrals for you know exercise or work addiction as such but i i predict in the future uh i think we will i think there'll be more understanding of the uh negative effects of those processes and then we'll start we'll have to start to look at the defining uh addiction in those cases but just just like the the internet gaming is about there will be consensus i believe on that in terms of uh diagnosis and in terms of sex uh there is no question there'll be consensus with that as well however sex is a difficult one because there's a, a a cohort of of um you know, with regards to sex addiction presentations that are people behaving badly, basically. So mm. people cheating in relationships and then looking to basically use the idea of sex addiction as a as a get out, you know. Um, but clinically, it's, you know, the kind of referrals I'm getting from a the, the sex, you know, sex addiction as a process addiction is very, very obvious that there's serious, you know, very serious issues there in terms of process addiction, just like gambling addiction. But I just might, yeah, sorry, I just might mention one last thing in terms of your, you know, Mark Griffiths makes this point, one one of our research collaborators in terms of, and Mark is a well-known process addiction researcher throughout the world. He makes the, the point that if you agree that gambling addiction as, you know, is a process addiction and it exists, then you should have no issue with the idea that other processes can be addictive as well. You know, mm. you know that intellectually that leap onto other processes. You know, if you follow that logic, that gambling addiction is a, is a pro. You know, it, you know, gambling is it, it, disorder can be an addiction. Well, so can the others. Sorry to to jump that last no, point that, in there. That, that makes perfect sense. But what what I'm thinking is in terms of substance versus process addiction. What I'm hearing is that the very act of engaging in the task is producing, potentially producing the addiction. Um. Well, well, hang on, because you know the 
you know, and I've heard Mark give this example before as well, but so I'll I'll nick it from him for the purposes of this podcast. <laughs> um but so Mark's an academic and lots, you know, a lot of our colleagues are academics and mm. their children, their children may, may be grown up, right? And uh they spend there's a, this is a couple who live together, but they they spend their their time with their heads, you know, buried in screens for pretty much the whole week. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so they do uh, you know, eleven hours a day of screen time, don't really interact with each other very much during the week. Maybe at the weekend, then they 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 go off for a hike or something. So that's eleven hours a day of screen time. It's adding to their life, they're enjoying it. They're in a blissful state of intellectual, uh, you know, harmony. They're mm. not interacting, but they don't want to be interacting. Their kids are raised. They're, you know, there is no conflict there. There's no issues with persistence in the face of there's no adverse consequences mm. versus the the young person who, you know, and I have had these referrals of, um, you know, a student who's supposed to be going to college, excuse me, but they're in their room. And mm. they're either on social media, internet gaming, intermittently using porn, and basically mm. they're on the screen for eleven hours to the serious conflict, uh, you know, of of the people they're living with, and their serious adverse consequences because they're not, you know, they're failing their exams. Mm. So, the the use there of the process. So in this case, it would be smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or whatever. But general use of the internet. And you know there is a there is the construct of internet use disorder. In both cases, the the, the amount of time is similar, mm. but but they're very different presentations. Mm. The one is potentially internet use disorder; the other is not. So, uh, you know, I, there there are calls for in terms of process addiction for the criteria to be stringent. You know, for for I mentioned the six boxes earlier for those mm-hmm. six boxes to be ticked not four of the six because you know there's, there are worldwide studies on internet use disorder and they've looked at the prevalence mm. but of course the prevalence completely depends on what you've defined what criteria you've de- you've defined to to meet that disorder so mm. if it's if you're taking four of the six boxes then you're getting a prevalence in that particular study of 40 you know 40 percent 30 percent you know or even higher but it's kind of meaningless isn't it like it mm. should it well, it's not meaningless, but it, it it's my interpretation of that would be that there's possibly harmful use in the sample, but that the measure you've used for addiction isn't stringent enough. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and I, I mean addiction according to our current concepts of drug and alcohol addiction and maybe gambling addiction, you know. Can we define our what the internal experience is? Say, say we take a gambling addict, for example. So what we're saying is that the internal experience that makes somebody spend every penny that they have is essentially a dopamine rush, right? What 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 would I be in the right area there? What 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 would your perspective be on that? Okay, well, you know, to 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 say um, just to reduce it down to dopamine mm. is unfair. I mm. mean, dopamine has very very strong links with the opioid system. Mm. which is natural endorphins. It has links with serotonin system, with the noradrenergic system in terms of activation. So you've got a group of key players there in terms of activation. And what we see in the early stages are the so-called hedonistic phases of use. In gambling, Mm. you'll have a big win. You have the release of these chemicals. You will have activations activation of these uh, of uh, of this particular neurocircuitry however what we tend to see in the latter stages is we have um after operant conditioning we have um increases in tolerance a need to you know engage in more of the process to have the same desired effect and we get dysregulation of those of that circuitry over time so really people in the latter stages are only using to feel normal as such. And mm. um, it's it's George Koob's work, K-O-O-B is the main, you know, that's the theory in, you know, of a, the latter stages of addiction. It's really just to try and prop yourself up and feel normal. 
Mm. rather than that hedonistic piece goes. I mean, obviously you need, if you need to continuously, um, you know, up the stakes in terms of stimulation of that system, it doesn't work. And this is what, you know, the chasing behavior in gambling, there's a huge amount of work done, particularly Luke Clark, who was at Oxford initially and then went to Australia. Um, there's some fantastic work on that chasing and the neurobiology uh, the activation of the neurobiological processes in chasing behavior, because mm -hmm. ultimately this is what we're looking at. You know, in Ireland, we have young people who after maybe a night out, go home and, um, you know, use a credit card um, to lose um, their shirt, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, fierce destruction. So um, it is dopamine, Connor, but it's also a whole host of other new um you know, neurocircuitry, uh, you know, other pathways. And, you know, for, 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 for your listeners that are interested in this, I mean, I mean, effectively my PhD was on this to a certain, cause it's, it was a biological, it's, you know, ultimately I was looking at the biological basis of addiction through the lens of genetics and whatever, but, um, uh, the candidate, you know, the candidate areas are very much linked together and, um, you know, if you said to me, well, well, Colin, what's the, give me, you know, give me in a few sentences what you learned from your PhD. <laughs> well, I learned that it was, you know, that, that if you look at certain candidates, it's like going down a rabbit hole. There's ser several other candidates that are going to be very much uh, key players as well. But to make it, to simplify it down, we have dopamine system, we have the mm -hmm. opioid system, we have serotonin system, we have noradrenergic system. And if you look at genetic candidates, still all of those ones will 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 come up, um, as you know, in every single study, um, the combed gene, which is linked with um, uh, the um noradrenergic system or the five HT, um, you know, one, two, and three, which is a serotonin system. The, I mentioned DRD two and the dopamine, but there's DRD three and four, all of the different candidates, um, so. These genetic candidates and these tracks, they can be. We can look at these in functional MRI as well. We can look at cases versus controls in terms of if you um you can look at these particular circuits and look at cases. If you take one individual who's gambling disordered and another individual who's controlled who's not, and if you look at um you can you you can see very clear differences in fMRI in terms of um hypoactivity in the risk processing areas. So when you expect certain areas to be functional and to be active and to be lighting up in somebody, somebody affected by gambling disorder, these areas are, are dysfunctional. And that's around risk processing. So when it comes to chasing in terms of, um, I should stop here. I've already lost 15,000 euro tonight. Mm. Um, this is really, really bad. It's that risk control is gone in somebody who's gambling, gambling disordered. It, it's not present. So biologically, when somebody is chasing losses, for example, do we have, how much research do we have there about what's happening when people are chasing losses? Because it seems as if the gambling moves from a pastime into a compulsive addiction when they start chasing losses. Would I be right in, or is that a theory that that makes any? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it does. Um, absolutely, and that's one facet of it. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's different. You know, there's bio. That's the biological side of things. I mean, I think it's it's very important to give the nod here to psychological and social. So, gambling disorder is mm. a biopsychosocial disorder. From a psychological perspective, the psychological theories is that you have a whole set of cognitive distortions that the person leads the person to continue chasing. Mm. So th those cognitive distortions would be gambler's fallacy, that a series of losses inevitably will lead to a win. Mm. So that's like the slot where you keep pressing the slot mm. and eventually it's going to come. But, you know, um, the other one is is um, a sense of um, that you're going to beat the house, you know. Mm. So you see high rollers coming in to Vegas for the weekend, somewhat on the base, you know, they know that they're going to, lose you know hundreds of thousands of euro but they're put up in the best suite and uh in the uh whatever the top hotels are there and, um, so ego and narcissism is is, is is that playing into this in any okay any... so so yeah i mean that's a good one i mean 
Okay, so, so and this is why. So so in men, it's competition and it's beating the house. Mm. Okay, and uh, uh, ego, absolutely. That's that's the competition piece. Narcissism is an interesting one. I mean, how do you define narcissism? I mean, mm. what does that mean? I mean, does that is this a pathological state where somebody can't, you know, um, you know, can't see beyond themselves? They're utterly in love with themselves, so they should continue gambling because ultimately mm. they're going to to win. I mean, uh, I I do think those those facets, you know, the general uh, having a sense that you're better than the house, that you're going to beat the house. Or having a sense of competition, a whole swathe of studies support that in men. In women, uh, there is a gender divide put out there in the studies that in women, it is more to uh, mood modify depressive states mm. or to emotionally regulate. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I think it, it almost sounds pejorative, uh, you know, that does, but um, I don't think it's as black and white as that. You know, I, the studies definitely suggest that there is a divide and you definitely see it in men in terms of sports betting and the competition piece. No doubt about it. And women would be more more, more likely to go towards uh, casino style products or, or the Candy Crush, uh, you know, you know, gaming and just for mood modification. That makes sense to me clinically. But again, I've seen women who've had bad sport, uh, sports betting problems. So you can't generalize. Mm. Um, you, what, you, what percentage, Colin? Like, what is the percentage difference? Is it like eighty percent men presenting, or is it what? What's going on there? It's about. I mean, it depends on the study. I mean, clinically, clinically, you'd nearly go with nine to one, but studies which suggest wow. it's more like more like four to one. Oh yeah, I mean, it's young male after young male after young male presenting to to clinical services, but in terms of the stats. I mean, it'll vary between studies, but it's more like four to one, five to one in 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 studies. And in Ireland today, in twenty twenty three, post COVID, if we were talking just gambling addiction, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? What uh, well, this is this is hugely contested. I mean, if we go back to the British Gambling Prevalence Survey twenty years ago, even fifteen, ten years ago, it then switched into the Gambling Commission took mm. over about 10 years ago, um, you had the figure about 1% was generally thought to be the pathological gambling. So that's 1% of your overall population mm. with severe, and I mean, like that's 24-7 preoccupation, suicidal ideation, maybe suicide lacks, you know, complete and utter carnage. Mm. But the gambling, uh, British, uh, uh, um, gambling Prevalence Survey and the Gambling Commission data was good in that it made the differentiation between complete carnage and then what they call at risk. Mm. Okay, so at risk means you're affected by gambling, you're a problem gambler, mm. and they put that up to 5%. Now, the, the industry likes to, they like the 0.7 or 0.8 figure. Mm. Because that's nice. That mm. that 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 really does sit well. Um, but really, if I think of five percent of, you know, five percent of five million people, mm. you know, so like we're talking hundreds of thousands of people affected mm. by gambling, and and why are we not hearing about it every day? Because it's it's an incredibly stigmatized uh, condition and disease. I mean, nobody wants to. Nobody. No, nobody is now you. Nobody wants to be associated with it, but why not? More recently, oh, because it's what's the stigma? I mean, it's with gambling. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the stigma with addiction? I mean, it's you. I mean, there's 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 been excellent like the literature on this is really clear. So it's negative biases they've done. There's been excellent studies on you know would you trust the person? Mm -hmm. Would you employ the person? You know, there's great work Shame. on stigma. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 looked at a lot of this. I mean, so so it it's ultimately a shameful thing. Um, these are these are the stereotypes and the unconscious bias mm -hmm. towards people who suffer from addiction. And in terms of the pecking order, gambling comes down right at the is 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 at the bottom of all of that. So gambling, you know, it's the I, I would suggest sex is even lower than that. So you know. So gambling comes second last, but sex addiction right at the bottom. So mm. that's the worst of the worst. So, but in terms of pro, you know, like the, you know, 
obviously addiction is a disease. It's it's a disease according to the international classificatory systems and all of the work that we're doing in psychiatry for the past 10 years. I mean, the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK did a Changing Minds campaign in terms of stigma and trying to get um uh trying to trying to get mental health on par with physical health, you know? Mm. There is no reason. I mean, that the phrase of um the tagline of the Royal College of Psychiatrists again was there's no health without mental health, mm. you know? So like, anyway, look, I won't go down the, the stigma road, but I mean, I, I, I've I been, you know, I, I obviously feel very strongly about that. Mm. And and also, by the way, I'm stigmatized as well, because, you know, it's like, you know, what, are you, wh- wh- why are you working? Why, why, why is that fella doing that? Like, why, mm. why, why didn't he do something? Why didn't he go off and hook up with those surgical guys I was telling you about at the top and become a fine surgeon, you know? <laughs> or a fine physician <laughs> what are you doing you know kind of thing and i'll tell you what i'm doing is that you know and this is the, i say this to medical students every time i go up to st vincent's and stand in the lecture theater i say what a fabulous uh you know the area of behavioral health as i've hopefully outlined at the top mm. in terms of the interface between biological um you know biotech biology um you know medicine and and ultimately the art of compassionately helping somebody in a space where there's two human beings together and one human being helps another human being. Mm. I mean, what a fabulous opportunity that is. And Mm. I say this, why is it, you know, in my medical school, there was only, I think two of us that actually Mm. did psychiatry, you know? And, um, I, I, every time I go to, to, to lecture hall full of medical students, I, 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 I say this to them, Mm. you know, you, you have a wonderful opportunity to to work in an area that is incredibly fulfilling watching people get well and sharing in that that experience is incredible um but you asked me about stigma the stigma is alive and well and uh, but it's changing it is mm. changing because and if you're asking me why why do i do you know why, why why do i engage with public audiences and media when when i'm asked to it's because of that it's to advocate it's try and push back against some of this stigma and some of this these horrible unconscious biases that are out there in terms of mental health and addiction. Do you think the psych- psychiatry as a profession has been stigmatized? I mean, we read books by about Sackler, the Sackler Empire, and um, medicalizing um, people in the United States. Is 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 that something you're concerned with? Of course I am. I mean, our topic today is probably more process addiction. It's probably, you mm. know, it's process addictions in general. And I I think it's incredibly important that we put the message out that, you know, that we are very mindful as psychiatrists not to over pathologize mm. in these particular Cautious. areas. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, hugely so. And, yeah. you know, I, I personally, when I talk about process addictions now, I, I, I am I'm very keen to get the message out that we are you know i talked about the six boxes and the stringent classification and diagnosis of process addictions because Mm. we have to be responsible here because otherwise you know we're opening up an area where there's very poor classification and poor um uh, definition and diagnosis of what are very serious conditions that is letting the people down who suffer from it and it's mm. also making a bit of a mockery of the area as well in terms of, you know, people will then lose, you lose credibility in the space in terms of, you know, the the authenticity and the validity of the of the diagnosis, you know. But it's mm. so, so, Connor, it's so, it's so, so important in terms of process addictions. And I, I think you can then extrapolate that, I mean, into, into psychiatry, you know. I mean, the... Um, you mentioned Sackler. I mean, the, the you're 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 referencing the opioid crisis in, mm. in the states. I mean, you know that the um, you know that that obviously hugely concerns me in terms of um that we don't have a repeat of that in Europe. But uh, you know, we already have serious problems with uh, opioids and heroin of over ser- several decades in in not least Dublin, but. Well, they, they um, yeah. were doctors were incentivized financially to overprescribe, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that was in the United States, right? The, 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 so I'm happy to report that that is not an issue. Yeah. Um. Currently, and there is you no. Know, I I don't have any concerns in that regard in terms of 
you know um basically that's not happening but what i would what i would say to you as well is i am concerned about the messaging around for instance medication uh you know ssris who came under the microscope recently i mean these medications i i want to take this opportunity to to you know to say that you know psychiatric medication prescribed by a competent clinician can be very, very life-saving. Yeah. And it is so important, you know, so I, I, you know, SSRIs are life-saving in certain circumstances. And it is so important to get the messaging right in that, mm. in terms of, you know, I'm hearing reports of, you know, SSRIs maybe not being more effective than placebo. This is not correct. Okay. Mm. The, the persistent literature and the evidence is that you know please placebo effect in all clinical trials can be relatively strong mm. but there is a material benefit of psychiatric medication including ssris and that can be life-saving and i would any of your listeners who are taking medication with with their clinician to keep taking their keep taking their medication in the first instance and secondly keep the debate and the conversation going with your clinician there's nothing wrong you know having debates bringing in the literature say look at this study i found that says that this medication may not be effective you got to look at that in the context of evidence-based medicine one study does not make up you know a an approach to a particular medication it doesn't you've got to look at it in totality and that's why psychiatrists are trained in evidence-based medicine in critical appraisal of literature and you know so you don't just pick something off google and say well because i read that that now is the you know is, is the gospel you know mm. definitely not so but i am very concerned about misinformation nowadays and it's it's a huge issue in terms of not only generally in society and political political you know in economics but in medicine it's very very important not least in psychiatry mm. um i wanted to ask you about gambling and in terms of comorbidities when people present right yeah do you find there's an associated dependency or is it just simply they're gambling do you, do you find alcohol dependency do you find other substances and i'm thinking in terms of helping people perhaps spot vulnerable friends colleagues family members do you know what i mean are there comorbidities attached to gambling yeah, of course, absolutely. So probably fifty to eighty percent of the time there is. Is it alcohol? Um, um mainly yes. Mm. Um, but you can get a, a poly poly um presentations. So, um, I mean, there's you have to look at the other things that go to each other. So alcohol and cocaine go together. So you mm. might have alcohol, cocaine, and gambling. Mm. Um, you know, cannabis doesn't tend to come into the mix in, in the picture much, but it can do, you know, mm. or you can have other process addictions. So it'd be gambling and um, internet gaming. It could be gambling and excessive porn use. It's another strong comorbidity. Mm. So you've got to look at gambling comorbidly with the substance addictions and then gambling comorbidly with the process addictions. Mm. Um, so the answer to your question is yes, it does present very frequently in terms of spotting, Problems with gambling, what I would say is um, suspicions often turn out we have spouses. It's generally say if a male presents, a spouse will say, I did have suspicions, but I didn't follow through on them. You know, overall, I would say, you know, we, we, we're at pains to tell spouses not to be beating themselves up because if somebody is determined to hide gambling, they will hide it, you know, mm. and there's an adept set of behaviors there to maintain the addiction which includes lying, the so-called world manipulating, which I don't like because it's pejorative. Mm. Um, um, you know, so so there's a whole host of things that one will do to defend their position and continue the gambling. And then, as you as you quite rightly point out, there's a number of comorbid uh, conditions that may present with the gambling. But telltale signs would be somebody's. Uh, you know, if if you have a a woman in the situation where they don't have any, uh, you know, the re repeating trends we'd see is that um, the person suffering from gambling disorder, be the male, might take all the mail, um, uh, might uh, take total control of finances, bank accounts, where the spouse doesn't, you know, ah, well, he deals with all of that. 
that can mm. be a you know can be a warning sign it may be nothing it may be that the person is just being helpful in that particular relationship but if we're to retrospect and look back mm. often there can be taking control of that side of things and the reason why is because the accounts are are upside down um changes in in behavior personality the preoccupation piece in gambling is huge so mm. people will all will often tell us that the person was not emotionally present not present you know just not present in general mm. and um you know so there's distracted. a lot of yeah Fine. distracted yeah mm. just not there and you see that i mean you see with substances you 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 do the the relatives uh, you know it's a more merciful path in terms of the relatives are are given an opportunity to see um you know to see to to see the progression of the disease and they get they get into they can get into it a lot you know a lot easier so i mean with alcohol it, it, it's probably very patent with the drugs mm. it's a little bit more hidden but with gambling it can be very very silent and that's mm. that that's that's you know the you know a big concern you know are you satisfied that the platforms the technology platforms and the industry is doing enough in terms of engagement are um, they engaging with treatment services are they if you know what I mean, the the service the 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 book gambling makers, companies, online bookmakers, yeah. Oh yeah, ah no no, sorry, I'll have to start giving out now here. <laughs> um, no, I'm not satisfied at all. Um, because we have a disconnect. We have very large profits, mm. and we don't have. Uh, a fair representation of service provision as a result of that large profit. So what we've suggested at one stage, we suggested a 1% levy mm. um, from total turnover. And more recently, I'm suggesting that we cost out um, after really watching the children's hospital uh, bill balloon, I thought, well, hang on a second, 1% won't cover it. Mm. So, you know, I, I thought if you, if you if you apply that to gambling, if you had an inpatient facility in every province and mm. you, you had a network of, multi, of community-based multidisciplinary teams to treat the hundreds of thousands of gambling difficulties in the country, um, how much is that going to cost with current inflationary, you know, building costs and all of that? How much mm. is that going to cost? So I think the way we should go about it, and I've said this to the minister quite recently and his team and to the um, Gambling Regulatory Authority, Anne-Marie Caulfield, who's the CEO of that, I've said what we need to do is we need to cost what it, you know, to, to put in reasonable service provision in the country if we're serious about doing that, mm. we need to cost it up and then we need to, to levy accordingly. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking at hundreds of thousands of uh, annual profit, um, I don't, you know, on, you know, in individual companies, well, why, why, can't, why couldn't that be done, you know? So in your view, we don't have sufficient therapeutic services right now to cope. No, with no, they're the utterly growth. insufficient, Connor. Utterly insufficient. Grossly deficient. So if, if and we study that, yeah, yeah, we've 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 studied that. We've 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 published papers on that. We 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 have looked at. We have asked every service across the country in terms of community health organisations, um, uh, you know, local community addiction teams. We've asked them, "What are you doing for gambling?" And mm. you know, the 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 results were well, not very much because we can't because we haven't got the resource to do it, and we have mm. you know so. So we've looked at that. We've answered the question. So it is grossly, and even you know, anecdotally, it's grossly, grossly deficient. If you're outside of Dublin now, I mean, if you look at statu statutory gambling provision, um, you have um, you know, extern problem gambling, who sh who who would be very good for you to talk to actually, mm. uh, if you haven't planned to do it already, which would be um Tony O'Reilly and Barry Grant. Mm. Um, who are excellent um, advocates and excellent speakers, um, but they're they're they you know they're providing a service a statutory service for people at the moment, but they struggle to get funding for 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 their operation. And I mean, at one stage they were on a six monthly. They had funding only for six the the, the further six months. I, I I haven't spoken to them recently, but I suspect it's the same situation now. So they're struggling for their existence. 
a, a professional, you know, for, for, to, to, to fund their operation, you know. And how do you plan long term if you don't know if you'll have the funding in six months? Like Correct. It's, it's, yeah, it's a... yeah, that's this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so look, what we need, I, I've made these submissions to Oireachtas committees and to, to the minister and, and, you know, I mean, we, I, you know, I, I think all are agreed, probably even the industry are agreed that, you know, um, and I don't, I don't want to speak for the industry, but like that in Ireland, we do need to have service provision but of course, it you know when it comes to paying for it, that's when it's going to be difficult, because mm. it's going to be expensive. Looking at the children's hospital is going to be expensive. It's not it hasn't got the same costs as a medical mm. and surgical facility mm. for children. But you know, if you're going to do an inpatient rehab and it's going to be one in every province, you know that's not asking too much. I mean, just to put one inpatient facility in each province. Mm. Um, how much is that going to cost to 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 have a facility to have debt management experts to have a multidisciplinary team to have social work all of the things that gambling disorder hits family mm. support family liaison family therapy you know for the for the incredibly traumatized and bereaved family members that that present looking for assistance what are we going to do just you know kind yeah. of you know, just talk about it for the next 10 years. And, you know, so like Alan, Minister Alan Shatter's white paper, Connor, was 2012. Mm. We're now in 2023 and we're still talking about things. However, this year we're looking at enactment of the Gambling Control Bill. We do have establishment of the Gambling Regulatory Authority. They're currently hiring, according to Anne-Marie Caulfield, which is ex excellent news. Speaking to the minister recently, um, they are progressing the legislation where other, um, you know, where, where it didn't happen before, which is good news and well mm -hmm. done to them. So like we are progressing, but, you know, I, I, you know, like we can, we can kind of fast forward onto the levy. Like what is, what is the levy going to be? And, you know, in the social fund and, you know, to me, we can fast forward right to that point, you know, like we can, we can, like if you really want to, you know, take politicians and administrators to task, you can say, right, what's the levy going to be? And so, I think the way you would go about that is cost it up and 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 then work your levy out on that. That seems to me to be the fairest way to do so, it. So forgive my ignorance here, Colin, but are we saying we don't actually have a levy in place right now? I would have just assumed that automatically no. there, there would be one. No, I mean, there's... They're not at the level that we're talking about. There's funding that 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 I mean, it's it's complex and disparate, and there's funding going to, for instance, horse racing and not to other sporting mm. bodies, and it's but it's 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 minuscule compared to what we're talking about in terms of we do not have a levy at the moment to answer your question in terms of providing uh, services for people who suffer from gambling disorder. Absolutely not. That is not there at the moment. So uh, that needs to be there. And when you look at the at the massive profits from online gambling in particular, mm. this is the disconnect that I'm talking about. We need to we need to we need to fix that. So before I let you go, I'm conscious of your time. Just a couple of things I wanted to, to check with you. Number one, is there something on the horizon that you're worried about that concerns you? I'm thinking in terms of fentanyl or. Is there a, a coming addiction, a coming wave that you can think of? Okay, well, I, I, I you know, um, yeah, there is one thing, and it's topical, and absolutely, fentanyl, carfentanil, and parfentanil, all of the fentanyls would, you know, put the fear of God in you. Mm -hmm. But if I could shift it onto tech, I think AI is probably my biggest concern at the moment mm -hmm. um, in terms of process addictions. You know, if you look at the combination of AI and VR, for instance, mm. um, and how how virtual reality could interface with AI and the development of products there, I mean, the sex industry immediately comes to mind. Mm. Um, uh, but more so, you know, gambling and AI is incredibly important. I mean, you know, can we teach AI? to spot addiction at an early stage? And mm. can we teach AI to help us? For instance, I mean, there's spreadsheets of somebody's gambling somewhere, right? 
So, and I'd be very surprised if AI, I mean, must be used in the gambling industry at present. I don't have any confirmation of that. Would there but, be privacy um, issues there, though, that would have to be overcome? Of course. Um, of course. I mean, this is something that has to be worked out. But I mean, everything has to be consented. If you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, somebody would have to consent to a particular procedure. But, you know, AI can be proven to be helpful in an anonymized fashion. You know, you don't need necessarily that's not going to have a negative impact on anybody from an experimental point of view and um if you're you know the question am i concerned about anything coming down the track ai most definitely if ai is thought to develop products that are more addictive uh particularly in the process addiction space that would seriously concern me yeah uh, last question um what's the name of your book and where can people get it oh yeah okay so <laughs> So it's Gambling Addiction in Ireland is the very creative title of my book. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty, 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 um, um, probably not particularly creative, but I just wanted it to, to, yeah, that's, that's what it's, that's what it's about. It's about gambling addiction in Ireland. So that's the title and it's available through Veritas. So you've, it's online. So you, mm. um, it is, I, I mean, um, a shout out to all those bu book, uh, what do they say? You're the best, um, your best, uh, your local best um, bookseller or whatever. You yeah. know, if they want to stock it, go ahead, guys. Um, get onto Veritas and get it into the bookstores. It should be in more bookstores. It's on but, Amazon, uh, right? It's got to be on Amazon. Uh, I don't know if it is. I think it's Veritas online. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for highlighting that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Professor Colin Lagar, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks, Connor. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you.